This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, February 3rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the governor outlines more vaccine programs as state health officials monitor variant strains of the coronavirus. Then, with Initiative 65 scheduled for hearings at Mississippi's highest court, lawmakers draft a potential substitute. Plus, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a former president of the State Medical Association laments Mississippi's reluctance to expand Medicaid. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is passing another milestone in its efforts to vaccinate residents against the coronavirus. Governor Tate Reeves says the state has surpassed a quarter million vaccinations and is prepared to begin distributing more second doses in the coming weeks. We have now surpassed a quarter of a million vaccinations in the state of Mississippi. We are operating at peak capacity and we're working to get even more vaccine into our state so that we can get it out to our people. As you know, the state-run sites uh, have an even more difficult logistical challenge this week when compared to last week and the week before that, because now we're not only providing first doses at our vaccination sites, we're now also providing second doses. And so whereas we had 30,000 first dose appointments the week of 118, for example, as we move into this week, we actually have 30,000 first dose appointments and approximately 18 to 19,000 second dose appointments. So it is possible that that's going to cause a little bit more of a challenge logistically and and possibly even uh, a little bit more of a delay at some of the sites. So I encourage everyone to be safe. We will work out these kinks as we get there. Uh, But moving from 30,000 shots in arms to approximately 49,000 this week, which will move, by the way, to approximately 60,000 in the weeks ahead, is going to take a little bit of effort. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says distribution through 21 drive through sites operated by the Department of Health are running efficiently. He also says more access points are being made available, including one through a new federal pharmacy program. We do think we're going to have a good week on our vaccinations. We're going to be doubling up first doses and second doses, and I have every confidence in our teams. They're going to perform wonderfully. Um, so uh, that'll be a new challenge, but I have every faith in, in, in everybody going, going forward. We are closely monitoring our external partners and are proud to see great progress and great efficiency more and more with our selected partners. So more vaccines will be available. And on our website, we do have a posting of who those external partners are in your community. So you can see what options are going to be available outside of the drive through clinics. And as you know, we did add 30,000 additional appointments today to the drive through clinics, and they filled up by noon. So um, we know there's ongoing demand out there for those, without a doubt. 
And then we do have this new program that's a federal program that's going to uh, supply pharmacies. Um, uh, Walmart specifically will be kicking off next week. We understand that approximately 30 different stores throughout the state with pharmacies will be activated. We do not have a final list of what those stores are, but we will let you know when they are on board. And we anticipate this first week about 6,200 doses being administered through this pharmacy program. With distribution moving efficiently in the state, Governor Reeves says the biggest obstacle is now supply. He says he emphasized that point in a meeting with federal administrators yesterday and is concerned the federal pharmacy program will be insufficient for rural residents of the state. They do anticipate increasing supply a little bit next week. Um, They have made the decision that they're going to partner in uh, an additional federal pharmacy program uh, which they, they say uh, is aimed at fighting uh, racial disparities. And so I'm hopeful that they are correct in their efforts. Uh, I will tell you that I am somewhat um, concerned about those efforts because um, while it's probably true in Washington, D.C. or in New York City uh, that you can walk a block in either direction and run into a, a Walgreens or run into a CVS or, or one of their partners is going to be Walmart, all three of which are, are great companies and, and typically do a great job. But in Mississippi, there aren't a lot of Walmarts in Issaquina County and there aren't a lot of Walmarts in very rural areas. And so they're, they're tiptoeing into this federal pharmacy program, and we're certainly hopeful that it is uh, helpful. They tell me that they are going to do uh, approximately 10% of the total vaccine that the state gets next week will go into this program. And so we should get somewhere in the neighborhood of 45,000 doses. And I would expect uh, that they will uh, send uh, approximately 10% of that or four to 5,000 doses to that federal pharmacy program. Overall transmission of the coronavirus is trending down in Mississippi, but health officials are exercising caution regarding variant strains of the virus. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says the state sends samples to the CDC for analysis and is working on bringing that technology to Mississippi. We are watching these uh, these mutational uh, variants very closely. We do send off regular submissions to CDC to try to detect any of those. We have not to date seen any of the UK, South Africa, or Brazil strains in the state of Mississippi, but we will continue to monitor, and we are looking to add our own on-site capabilities of doing whole genome sequencing and um, uh, aberrant strain detection here in our state public health lab. So we should have more real-time feedback on that going into the near future. Mississippi's seven-day rolling average has dropped more than 1,000 cases per day since its January 9th high. Then the state was nearing 2,500 cases per day. Now it's 1,419, the lowest since early December. Coming up, with Initiative 65 scheduled for hearing in Mississippi's highest court, lawmakers draft a potential substitute. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. 
Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Initiative 65, the ballot referendum making medical marijuana legal via a constitutional amendment, is being challenged at the state's highest court. Over 70 of Mississippi voters, over 70 percent of Mississippi voters approved the initiative last November. Now, a new bill out of the Senate Finance Committee would create a separate law called the Mississippi Medical Cannabis Act, which could serve as a substitute measure if the court strikes down Initiative 65. Senate Bill 2765 authored by Republican Kevin Blackwell, delegates responsibility for regulating the program to the State Department of Agriculture. Blackwell says the law is more fair toward small business. Blackwell and Democrat David Blunt debated the bill during yesterday's committee meeting. As, as a business person, I think 65 is unconstitutional. And I say that because my business is not protected. Your real estate business is not protected. The farmers are not protected. But yet we've taken this one product and this one industry and we're protecting it in the Constitution. I think that's a violation of equal, the Equal Protection Act. Well, that horse has left the barn, Senator Blackwell. Uh, I'm sorry? That horse has left the barn. It I, mean, have, I, but, I mean, but, I appreciate your points, but I mean. But, but, but you know, that's, uh, 65 is also in front of the Supreme Court. So what happens if 65 is struck down? Then, and we don't have something in place. We've already know that about 73% of the people want m- medical cannabis. Mm-hmm. So this bill will, would allow them to have that, that process, plus the tax revenue that if it's generated by 65, it, it goes to the industry. It, it, does, goes, it doesn't go to the taxpayers. No, it doesn't I, benefit anybody but them. Well, it goes to the health department to administer the program. And, you know, we could debate whether that's the way it should work, but – Sure. But but that's what. So my question is, if 65 it remains in the Constitution, then uh, what what's going to be the impact of this legislation? Well, under this, with the guidelines, people, if they're supposed to get 20 milligrams of THC in a product, uh-huh. they're going to get 20 milligrams. Under 65, hey, whatever's in the joint's in the joint. So if you got but, but, uh, herbicides, but that, but, insecticides, well, hey, have at it. But but 65 is the Constitution, and so I mean, can don't I just I can choose as as a as a patient or somebody in the marijuana business, I can say, well, here's a regulatory structure over here that's in the Constitution. I can choose that, right. or here's another one over here. I can choose that. But they're both going to they're both going to exist and be parallel to each other, so they they may, and that's that's somebody's choice. That's it's my choice as a businessman if I want to get into become a cultivator or if I want to have a dispensary. So, it's also my choice as a, a patient where I go and get my certificate filled. So if you're a businessman, you can say, well, I could pay this big licensing fee and have my product I sell taxed at a higher rate, or I could not. Yeah, because I got a quality product, but. We can, argue, we, we can go around in circles on okay. this. But. All right. I, I, wish we, I wish we'd been having this discussion last year, but I appreciate well, it. Thank 18 you, would have been a good year to have done it. But. Senator John Horn also serves on the Senate Finance Committee. Horn, a Democrat who supports Initiative 65, tells our Desiree Fraser he has mixed feelings over the bill. 
I think that uh, certain portions of it um, uh, go against uh, the intent and spirit of 65. And I think that uh, it may pose some legal questions if 65 is upheld by the Supreme Court and this bill were to become law, uh, there are some, some things that would need to be ironed out. If the uh, bill is struck down by the state Supreme Court, um, this particular bill, Medical Cannabis um, Act, it changes some of the things that are in 65. It differs? Yes. Uh, one of the top things that, that jumps out at me is that uh, the initiative did not uh, require any taxation on um, uh, the dispensing of medical marijuana. Uh, and that's consistent with prescriptions for other uh, uh, prescription drugs uh, that are not taxed uh, at this point. And in, in the, the um, bill that's before us, 2765, uh, there's taxation at the point of sale of 10%. And there's also a 4% excise tax uh, that would go and have to be paid by the growers of the medical marijuana. I know you're not the author of this bill, Senator Blackwell is, but do you think because it was so popular with folks that over 70% of Mississippians voted to support uh, Initiative 65 that some legislators see this as an opportunity to make money off of it? Yes, uh, I, because there are no requirements for uh, money going into the state general fund or going into specific programs other than the operation of the medical marijuana program itself, I believe that uh, the intent of the, of the folks who sponsored the legislation uh, and who are trying to get it working through the process is uh, that so that we can get uh, some revenue that would go to in this case, uh, programs dealing with education from early childhood education uh, all the way up through um, uh, scholarships for community and for your college students. This bill passed out of committee. It goes to the floor now? That is correct. If it is passed, what happens with Initiative 65? Well, Initiative 65 is still winding its way through the courts. Uh, it's at the Supreme Court right now, and we expect that there will be a, a ruling within a couple of months uh, from the Supreme Court, and uh, we'll know better uh, what the fate of uh, the, the initiative is at that time. Uh, but also, uh, I think the, the framers of this particular bill wanted to have a backup plan since the citizenry overwhelmingly have said that they want medical marijuana as an option for healthcare in Mississippi, uh, then we would, we would then have to uh, look at, uh, if, the, if the bill passes, look at um, it as an alternative to the initiative. Senator John Horn with our Desiree Frazier. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a former president of the State Medical Association laments Mississippi's reluctance to expand Medicaid. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule 
at mpbonline.org. Hi, this is Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Nursing and Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and you're listening to a Southern Remedy Health Minute. a chronic problem with triglycerides and I'm not supposed to eat processed meat. What is the processing that makes it bad health? Lots of times the processed meats, one, are going to have a lot of sodium added to them, right? Which sodium is not great for heart health, makes us hang on to fluid and have higher blood pressure. And then there are also um, nitrites that are added to a lot of processed meats and some other chemicals as well. And in particular, processed meat that additive that is added to it is what we call carcinogenic. So it increases the risk of cancer, in particular gut cancer. Um, And so the WHO does list processed meats as like a level one carcinogen. And so it's a combination of the actual preservatives and the chemicals used in that, as well as the sodium that make processed meat kind of a a no-go. And so, you know, we talk a lot on the show about plant-based diets and moving people to plant-based diets. But a lot of times when I'm working with folks, the first step is just moving from processed meats to just regular unprocessed meat, um, because that's an improvement, just getting off of the processed part um, and moving to more of a fresh cut of, of meat. And then we can start to work on decreasing the actual meat consumption as well. So anything moving away from that processed product is what we wanna do. For more health tips and medical info, tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Dr. Tim Alford is a longtime family physician and past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. He knew Mississippians were struggling to get health care before he began working in the emergency room in the small town five years ago. He laments the state has refused to accept Medicaid expansion since the discussion began in 2014. Early on um, in the in 2014, with beginning and inception of ACA, when governors around the country were posturing against it, the argument was used that you, the state state can't afford it. Well, in fact, um, the state, at least for the, out of the first two years, was going to get ten dollars without having to put up anything, and it was going to mean a billion or billion plus dollars coming into the state to provide for health care services that could not be compensated for otherwise. And then after that, then it's uh, the state would be obligated to put up a dollar and get nine dollars back. In anybody's book, that's a pretty good deal, uh, that kind of match. And it's hard to understand why it just doesn't make good economic sense to turn that down. So they, the House of Medicine should be holding up the standard and everybody else fall in line and let science speak and let the evidence speak 
we sort of got things backward and let and we started taking our instructions and directions from the politicians rather than the other way around. I can tell you that politicians are generally respectful and hungry to understand the truth in science. And I'm just not sure that we were um, emphatic enough uh, in making our case that providing um, is allowing people to get their primary care was the right way to do it. And we, we had this empty promise, well, we'll find something. We'll find, we'll do something. Nothing has been done. We've had uh, eight, seven, eight years now, and still nothing has been done. People are still in desperate in desperate straits as far as uh, their health care is concerned. More than one in five Mississippians don't have health insurance, one of the highest percentages of uninsured in the U.S. Dr. Alford says accepting Medicaid assistance has become a battle of political rhetoric when it should be a question of moral responsibility. We can either decide that we're going to uh, accept um, the um, Medicaid assistance like 30 other, 38 other states have, and indeed our neighboring states have, uh, are accepting it. Louisiana is a good example where they have identified, and you stop and think about 300,000 people. How many, pe- how many people in that group have unidentified breast cancer or have unidentified colon cancer? or have uncontrolled hypertension. And those things are gonna blow up in an emergency room somewhere and cost society a lot of money. And so this idea that we're not gonna pay for it is really a, 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 a fairy tale because we, in the end, do pay for it and we pay dearly for it. Uh, not to mention that it's just the right thing to do. Um, to me, uh, to accept that help lines up a lot better with our Judeo-Christian ethic that we all espouse, or many of us espouse, um, than to turn a blind eye to this. For those without insurance, emergency rooms become avenues for primary care, but services provided in the ER may run 10 times higher than regular hospital services. Dr. Alford says those costs hurt rural hospitals because patients can't pay. If you're diagnosing those things in the emergency room, in a lot of cases, it's too late. I mean, you're a lot better off picking things up early, and it's a lot better on the whole system. It takes a lot of the uh, pressure, cost off of the system. And the fact of the matter is that somebody has un- is not able to get care because it can't be compensated for. Those people that can pay their premiums are paying a higher premium as a result. So if you load the system with a lot of uncompensated care, that cost gets passed on to those of us who can pay our premiums. That just, uh, just makes economic sense. Not to mention the fact that these people now that we're talking about, these 300,000 people plus or minus a few thousand, these people are salt of the earth people. These are people that we all encounter every day. They're truck drivers. They are... Uh, teachers' assistants, um, they're people that make an impact on our community, and they're not deadbeats, and some of them are working two and three hour shifts, two, two, two shifts, or 18 hour days, and at the end of the week, there's just not money left in their account to pay a four or five or six hundred dollar premium. So these people that we 
think are deadbeats really aren't deadbeats. They are people that simply cannot afford, at the end of the day, the rising cost of health care. This segment was produced in partnership with the Community Foundation for Mississippi's Local News Collaborative, which is independently funded in part by Microsoft Corporation and courtesy of Jerry Mitchell, who provided the interview tape. The collaborative includes the Clarion Ledger, the Jackson Advocate, Jackson State University, Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, and Mississippi Today. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.